The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast with me, Claire Armistead. Me, Sean Kane. And me, Richard Lee. Brett Easton Ellis joins us to lift the lid on the controversy around White, his first book in 10 years, which appears to have upset a very particular demographic. Yeah, I am very sympathetic to millennials and as well as frustrated by them and annoyed. You can be both. Plus, we discuss the new Poet Laureate. The news was mysteriously delayed for weeks on end and theories abound as to why. But finally, last Friday, it was announced that Simon Armitage will be following in the footsteps of John Dryden, William Wordsworth, Ted Hughes and, of course, most recently, Carol Ann Duffy as the UK's national poet. But first, we'll be talking to that poster boy for bad behaviour, Brett Easton Ellis. Since blowing up the literary world with his grisly serial killer novel, American Psycho, which I think has the distinction of being one of the only novels you have failed to finish, Sean, yeah, is that right? That's exactly right. <laughs> it comes shrink-wrapped, doesn't it, in some countries? Yeah, yeah, it Even comes now. shrink-wrapped in South Australia, where I'm from, and I used to have to card people when they came to buy it at the uh, bookshop I worked in. <laughs> it was quite a weird thing. It's like buying booze or porn or, or Brett Easton Ellis. <laughs> Well, he's now turned to non-fiction with a new essay collection called White, but he still can't keep away from controversy, having spent the last few weeks laying into millennials in the interest, of course, of promoting his book. His work demands readers with hard heads as well as hard stomachs. He's not just the shock jock that the headlines might suggest. So we called in our arts editor, Alex Needham, to find out what makes the time bomb tick. Sean, you were there. What's he like as a person? Um, he talks about people being over-triggered. Were you over-triggered? Well, there was this funny moment when I went to collect him before the uh, the interview and uh, he looked at me and sort of just, you could just kind of tell that he was anticipating some sort of reaction because of my age. Of what you looked like. I'm the awful millennial and I've come to collect him for his interview. And I don't think he knew who Alex was, so maybe he thought I was Alex and he was just sort of like, oh no, some 28-year-old's about to just lay into me for the next I've 45 minutes. I've been set minutes. up, basically. Yeah, exactly. But I just sat quietly in the corner and listened in on the interview just because I was interested. He'd been in the news so much recently. And of course, I have quite a fraught relationship with a lot of his writing in that I think he's he's an immensely talented guy, but he's sort of settled for getting reactions out of people by but shocking he, them. He's very, very talented, but he is also a, a sort of proper formalist, isn't he? He takes a very craftsman-like yeah, in yeah, his he's attitude got, he's to got, his work. He's got a real a real sense of style that you can immediately recognise his, his writing. It's not just sort of gore, 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 which is sort of what you might think of if you hadn't read American Psycho and then were trying to sort of base an opinion on it. It's always the gore what people talk about. But actually, he's got an incredible sense of style. And I think Less Than Zero is an amazing book. But then to sort of have him over the last few weeks promoting this essay collection, White, and having him just immediately sort of going for all the the topics that everyone wants him to talk about, you know, the Trump, the millennials being, you know, fatuous and awful and all this sort of stuff... But the funny thing is, even though I've got all these ideas about the kind of writer that he is, White was actually a far more surprising book than I thought it would be. So let's hear him talking to Alex. So you've written White, which is your first book for 10 years. And like most of your books, it's caused a massive reaction. There's a furious backlash. And now there actually seems to be a backlash to the backlash. Why do you think that, do you ever set out to be controversial or is it just mm-hmm. something that happens? No, you can't suss out to be controversial because what if it doesn't work? What have you done then? I mean, you can't, I mean, look, I've been around uh, more or less for 35 years. You can't really sustain a career on just shocking people or being provocative. And that is not where I start 
from. That's not a place I start from as a writer. I have things that I'm interested in writing about for very personal reasons. Uh, they mean a lot to me. But I'm not thinking of an audience. I'm not thinking of an audience when I write things down, when I uh, put together a book like White or any of the fiction that I've written. So I don't know why the books trigger people in the way they do. I must say, they don't trigger some people. Some people right. are perfectly happy with White and really like it, and they, they're not triggered by it, and they don't think it's a, you know, this terrible manifesto or whatever people uh, uh, on the negative side of things seem to uh, consider the book. But um, I, I just don't know if that's like an honest place you can start from as a writer. And I also i am not necessarily interested in that much attention. I have not published a book for 10 years. Obviously, if I was looking for more attention, I would have published a book every two years uh, or so and maybe written the sequel to American Psycho or maybe written something of some kind of obvious shock value. And it just doesn't work that way for me. I think it's interesting in the book where you talk about giving your partner at the time the manuscript to American Psycho, which I think you were writing. Yes. And then you were very surprised when he said, oh, this is going to get you in so much trouble. Yes, I was. And that's why I wrote about this in white. I didn't believe him. I foolishly didn't believe him. I didn't believe good old Jim, who uh, looked at some of these uh, pages uh, late in the game. I mean, I was finishing that book up in 1989. And that's when that scene took place. Uh, I'd been living with him for about a year. I had shown American Psycho to nobody. Nobody had seen it. I was the only one. I was the only one privy to it. I didn't show parts of it to friends or get people's opinions on it. And since I was living with Jim, he wanted to read it, and he was reading it. And that scene that I describe in White happened where he said, you're going to get into trouble. I said, what are you talking about? You know, this is – I really had come to the point where I believed that this was a a severely uncommercial novel that was kind of like an experimental novel. I loved writing it. It was fascinating to write for three years, but I also thought 10, 15,000 readers tops, right. if so that. You, so I didn't think, think there was anybody. Really, really care. And then I thought, I'm going to have my million-selling book will be the next one, Glamorama. Right. That will be the big one. That will connect with the audience in a giant way. So you never know. You don't, you know? And so Jim was right. <clears throat> yes, I got into a lot of trouble because of the book. I didn't think he was right. And I, and I think in retrospect, when we see the book— and we read it now that it's many more things than just what the controversy suggested in 1990, 1991, if I do say so myself. I mean, there's a sort of a bit, it's a bit of a theme in White about how you're surprised by people's reactions. And I'm just wondering whether there is something a little disingenuous where you say something rude on Twitter about Catherine Bigelow, for, mm-hmm. for instance, yeah. and, then you, and then you get a, and you get an angry response. And you seem quite taken aback by that. Twitter but. and the novel are two very different things. Yes. Twitter so was a way to get responses from people. Uh, not particular people, but it was a way to read the audience. And often many, many people were on your side going, yeah, right on. I agree with you about that. And then there was the side that clutched their pearls and was shocked and couldn't believe you said that. I have never been shocked by a tweet in my life. So I, it's hard for me to understand how someone is shocked by my tweets. Twitter, as I write in the book, I never considered it to be like a real thing. It was an app that was fun to use. And in the early days, it was an app that was used to incite people and have outrageous opinions and say, but for two minutes, Mm. 
for one or two minutes, for five minutes. It, it, it didn't seem to have the kind of longevity that I guess it does today with certain tweets. I don't, I don't remember then that tweets were getting 147,000 likes or dislikes. It was, a, it was kind of like the Wild West. And it wasn't supposed to be taken so seriously. Uh, so when I would tweet certain outrageous things, it was like fun for five minutes. And then it seemed to me to be a very disposable thing. And that was it. It was kind of in that moment. If you're talking about like a long-term idea of provoking people and shocking people, I don't know. I guess I can't relate to it because I don't think I've ever been felt that way about art. And I talk about right. it. I've never been shocked or I can't believe that I'm reading this. I've wanted to be torn apart by art. Mm-hmm. I've wanted art to upset me. But to be offended by art or to be offended by a tweet, I'm not there. And I don't understand how anybody else is either. Right. Because being disturbed is an important response, isn't it? As a Yeah. I don't want to say consumer as a reader as a as a, as a view, person as a viewer as a person as someone who grows up in this terrible world yes you need to you need to confront that and you need to experience it and it's it's not going to kill you you know it's not going to wreck you and you don't i mean i guess now people are triggered and they need to they need warnings about stuff but i i love that part of growing up i love coming across art that shook me and that upset me and that made me see the world in a different way but offended i don't think i've ever been offended by by a piece of art or and certainly i've never been offended by a tweet that to me is the height of ridiculousness but there you go i'm quite interested in your idea in the book about sort of empire and post empire which uh, and you sort of suggest that the turn in in culture happens or is exemplified by someone like eminem who he kind of appears doesn't he in like 99 so i suppose it's too years before 9-11, which seems to be your marker between empire and post-empire. Can you talk a little bit about this divide and where we are culturally? It's my own personal theory. It's my own little personal theory. You're not going to find this in any history books. This is not written about culturally anywhere. Gore Vidal called the U.S. officially an empire after the war. Right. It was the most powerful country in the world. And like all empires, he said, it's going to fall at one point. When is it going to fall? And to me, I felt a shift was happening in terms of what I call empire propriety. This notion that if you were well-known, you uh, played by the rules of uh, humble, earnest celebrity to a degree. Mm. And that that's that's what everyone expected. And that empire was about making yourself look the best you possibly could. And there seemed to be some shift after 9-11 and into the Obama presidency where I noticed this shift where people really weren't adhering to that anymore. And people were shucking off the bounds of empire propriety, whether it was John Mayer gave this incendiary interview in Playboy that shocked a lot of people. My dick Um, is a white supremacist was one of the quotes. There was. And then also his sexual life was also a, a, a big part of it, too, that he would have been so obviously blatant about his sexual life. And it was people getting impatient with empire propriety. And you could see that with someone as innocuous as Ricky Gervais on the Golden Globe or Lady Gaga on 60 Minutes. This is like daring people to say something about her that when she said she smokes weed 
during uh, when she writes songs, which a lot of people were not admitting in the mainstream media then 10 years ago. And it was, and it was, Eminem was that first poster boy. Those records came out in the late 90s, but they were, uh, they were a kind of, it seemed like a response to something like, if he's writing a record about the failure of his marriage, like Bruce Springsteen did with Tunnel of Love and like Bob Dylan did with Blood on the Tracks, this was a very different kind of expression at play. It wasn't polished. It wasn't uh, tasteful. It wasn't necessarily even that tuneful. It was a transparent howl of rage. Mm. And he did not neuter his fantasies. I mean, he has a song there where he murders his wife and she's shrieking, you know, by his mm. own hands. And all this seemed to be heading towards something. I think Char- I really uh, saw Charlie Sheen's breakdown in that moment when he was fired from Two and a Half Men. And he just said, fuck you to everybody. And this is who I am. Take it or leave it. I'm not going to play by these rules anymore. To be a key moment in this post-Empire period that we briefly went through for four or five years before something clamped down on it and didn't want it to flourish anymore. I thought it was a fascinating five years. I thought something like Kanye West grabbing uh, Taylor Swift's award away from her at the MTV Music Awards seemed like that kind of moment. A lot of Kanye moments did. And then it seemed that corporate culture began to write the new rules, and then everyone started to conform to this, and that there was a, that a new kind of propriety had been instilled. But I mean, in a way, this propriety is not that rampant, is it? You know, we've got Trump, who is who has got a post empire president, yeah, a post empire president, yeah, yeah. So what you kind of say about a sort of sense of propriety, which you do describe as, as fascism, if I've got that right, a few, mm-hmm. quite a few times in the book. Yeah. You Dramatic. know, it's not really, Dramatic. there's quite a big, to me, that's not the domin- what the dominant discourse is. I mean, it is in certain pockets of places, but generally, you know, people are exposing themselves all over the internet. You have Trump who sort of has told 10,000 lies in his presidency yes. and just, com- and you know, attacks anyone who's slighted him you know, incredibly full bore. Yeah. You've got this ongoing chaotic sense here in the UK with all the discourse around Brexit. When did this movement ever I'm talking ever about end? culture. Right, okay. I'm not talking about politics. I'm right. talking about people in the entertainment business that that's which is what I write about yeah, in life. Yeah, yeah. Wasn't writing about outside the culture and business or in politics. It was specifically entertainers, creatives expressing themselves in ways that I had never seen before right. and expressing themselves in public without any PR niceties. And that was the interesting moment for me that was post empire and and when I write about it in the book it's all about entertainers. It's all mm. about musicians, it's all about actors, it's all about that moment where it seemed you could be a creative and totally free in what you said and how you expressed yourself. And there was a clamping down on that. Entertainers all the time are self-censoring now. Entertainers all the time are afraid to say certain things, are afraid to um, express themselves fully in that way that it seemed to be flowering in that moment. But certainly in the dominant culture with everyone shrieking at each other and saying whatever they want to say to each other is different than I think what's going on within the entertainment system and what it means to be an artist. Right. And you think that they're scared to say what they really think because, they, because they'll get monstered on, on Twitter? Is it that no, kind of I thing? I think or? that's partly it. That's partly the mob, being afraid of the mob. But you can also just stay off Twitter. 
You know, you don't have to, you know, I, I remember talking to Quentin Tarantino about a really terrible week he had in 2015 where he gave him some interviews and then everybody called him racist. He was totally racist for this or that. And he said some sexist stuff. He didn't like Kate uh, Blanchett, he said in an interview. I don't like her as an actress. And all hell broke loose. And I had him on my podcast and I said to him, this has been a really bad week. I mean, everyone's calling you this and calling you that. And he said, I don't know anything about any of this. What do you mean? Right. He said, well. Uh, you know, he said, I don't go on social media. Mm. I haven't heard about this, and I'm sure it will just evaporate and that it will pass, which it ultimately does. But I think that it is tied into the cult of likability, and it is tied into wanting more followers, more people on Instagram to like your post. And there is a kind of performative aspect to pe- to people's lives now that say, love me, like me, I'm aspirational. I'm an aspirational figure. I'm ascending to something. And again, I'm talking within the entertainment and I'm talking about within cultural circles. And I and I think that's, um, I don't know, it is what it is. I mean, I find it interesting, but it, it might not be for others. Although I'm kind of wondering now about people like Triple X Tentacion, you know, those sort of, those sort of SoundCloud rappers who were probably, you know, who make Eminem look like completely Mary Poppins. Yes, you know, and they're and they're hugely, hugely yes. popular. Yes, but maybe they're not quite in the mainstream I discourse. Think, no, they're not in the mainstream in in that way. So I guess th- those aren't what I'm talking about. But there is an extreme yeah. thing going on on the edges of the culture, and I think there will always be. I was talking to the. CEO of Miramax, and we were talking about the fact that Disney is basically going to be the only corporation in town dealing with content and making content. And I was asking, well, what does this mean? So everything's going to be the PG-13 rating that we have in the States. Does this mean no more nudity in movies? Does this mean no more smoking in movies? I mean, does this mean a real watering down of content if Disney is going to be the only thing, the company that controls all the content that's being made? And he said, no, not necessarily. There's always going to be a hunger for kind of violent dark uh stuff and that that will always be produced somehow and to think that disney is going to somehow wave its wand and make everything disneyfied is probably alarmist and there will always be a hunger for that from people it's just not going to be in the mainstream anymore they're not going to have that kind of anarchic art that used to uh appear in the mainstream every so often, or used to be the mainstream, actually. I mean, you talk, you talk at the beginning of the book how growing up in the <clears throat> San Fernando Valley, you watched all this, you watched the films of the, you know, the films of the time, which were kind of full of sex and violence, and you had a particular fondness for horror films. You think that kind of toughened you up? Well, someone, or, I or, think I think it's easy to make fun of someone for that. He's saying, I saw <laughs> Carrie in 1976 and became a man because of it. Or it's the same thing, like, I walked to school for six blocks in the sunlight, and I was, it, was, it really toughened me up. Um, it's easy to make fun of that, I suppose. But I do think there is something about the notion that the world wasn't made for children then. And we really didn't have any options. I mean, our options were horror movies and movies made for adults. And whether they were Mel Brooks comedies or they were Nick Rogue films or whatever. I mean, that's what we did. The world wasn't made for children. And so me and my friends at 10, 11, 12 were seeing the movies that the adults were seeing. Mm. Adults took you to the movies and you saw whatever they wanted to see. And it was an education. And it was kind of... uh, peeking behind the curtain into adult life and maybe uh, maturing sooner than you would have if you grew up on Frozen and on Marvel movies and whatever. I mean, seeing how adults lived in real R-rated movies of the 70s, 
I don't know. It it made you also want to be an adult. That's the other thing that's strange. It really it, it sped up the desire to get through school, get out of everything, and then enter into the world of adults. It wasn't scary. It was sort of sexy. It was yeah. enticing. Although you grew up to become the author of American Psycho. I did. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I that's did. what people are, uh, are worried about. But I wonder. You, <laughs> you seen it. I do talk about that in, in, in the book about uh, that horror movies were an aid in a way yeah. of making me see the failures of my family's life and uh, the failures of the world and my own unhappiness. And they kind of helped me get through that in a way. Yeah, they told me that the world was, yeah, this is how the world was. Yeah. And it was oddly comforting. So you took a lot about millennials in the book. You're the oh, boyfriend of one as yes, well. So you, you're seeing this phenomenon up close. 24-7. <laughs> You call, you call them Generation Wuss. You I say, did. I used to call them that on my, on my Twitter feed. Right. But as you a say, joke. As a joke. <laughs> but you say they've experienced kind of helicopter parents. They've often been medicated. Oh, for, all of them have been medicated, yes. Right. So you think they need to... Oh, come on. I mean, I the Twitter stuff started out as a joke. It was right. funny. I would list all these things that I noticed that would, should go under the headline of Generation Wuss. Like, um, I don't even remember... I, I don't even remember most of them, but it stuck. It struck a nerve with people, and people thought, oh, that's such a Gen X term for millennials, Generation Wuss. And I played around with it for a couple of years. I never took it seriously, never pitched a book idea about it. But the um, the title stuck, and uh, when I was putting this book together, I had done a piece for Vanity Fair about living with a millennial mm. and what it meant. Hugely sympathetic, as I am in the book, too. There's a, long, there's a big paragraph that ends that that talks about how sympathetic I am to them yeah. and also how they were not created in a vacuum. Another yeah. generation helped create them, and they are a reaction against that generation. Don't know if it's Gen X as much as maybe uh, younger baby boomers. Maybe, maybe it's Gen X, too. And I was talking about this with Chuck Palahniuk on my podcast two weeks ago. We were talking about why wouldn't millennials be this way? Why wouldn't there be a reaction against the negativity, the nihilism, the aloofness and irony of Generation X? I mean, that's just the natural progression of things. And so what if they're aspirational to an almost ludicrous degree? I think so. But, but what's wrong with that? You know, And all the things that I complain about as a 55-year-old Gen Xer, and rightly so, I also temper with the fact that I understand where they're coming from. I completely yeah. understand it. And I'm not, I am the old man on the porch, you know, shouting at whatever the clouds. Um, but I also am deeply sympathetic to them as well. And I understand by living with one for 10 years and being in his shoes 24-7 and hearing him talk about his fears and his anxieties and why they're there. Sometimes I make fun of them. Sometimes I go, oh, thanks. I didn't get that. Yeah. And so it has become one of the more controversial aspects of this book because people seem to think that I'm just slamming millennials when I'm really trying to understand them. And Generation was is a fairly harmless moniker, I think. But it was interesting, uh, the Sunday Times, I guess your rival, I don't know, the, yeah, the we, Times did we, a piece, this piece on me where the headline was, Brady Janela said, what's going on with millennials? Millennials don't read anymore. I don't think they even read books. That's 20 seconds, 20 seconds in a two-hour interview I did with Decca, And that becomes the pull quote, that becomes the headline, and I am inundated with thousands of angry millennials on my Twitter feed. And, of course, none of them wanted to go past the paywall to read the rest of the yeah. article to see what else I said about them. 
But um, yeah, I am very sympathetic to millennials and as well as frustrated by them and annoyed. You can be both. You sort of, you're kind of critical about the current drive to, you know, for instance, if you're doing a review of the Beyonce album, it's, you know, if you're a black woman, you have a more authentic <laughs> response to this record and a more, more penetrating critical reaction. Would you say that you're very against that kind of identity politics infused brand I'm of criticism? Against. I'm not against You're it. not against it? That's fine. People can say whatever they want. Because it's kind of the thing, isn't it? That <sighs> it's, kind of, it's kind of boring, isn't it? I, I mean, it's a little group thinky, isn't it? It I is mean, a bit group thinky, but I guess, it, I guess it does also say that, you know, people of my age and gender and demographic and yours as well, you know, maybe yeah. it's time we did budge up and give, some, give yeah. somebody else the microphone of now course. and again. Yeah. Right. Totally. Thumbs up. <laughs> you know, I agree. What can I say about that? Yeah, you're not you're not against that, but you're against. Kind uh, of- I'm not against. I think Beyonce is at times, at times, enough of a presence and a kind of major artist that I don't know if Beyonce is quite the right example in right. terms of like representation or whatever the complaint might be in terms of uh, what we're talking about in terms of. Uh, but, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, you get in trouble, whatever. I mean, talking about this too much. I, and I really don't care. You know, I don't really care that much about whether that is happening with Beyonce. It did become a joke in the United States. Lemonade did become, in yeah. certain areas, it was it was raised to this kind of, you know, it ascended to, oh, you can't say anything about Lemonade and you can't say anything about negative about the Queen, even though, yeah, you could. There was yeah. negative things to say about Beyonce. You see that documentary she made? I've not seen I mean, that. come on. I mean, she's not, no one's foolproof, man. Yeah. But yet there are certain places in the United States where it, it gets to be ludicrously touchy to yeah. criticize or say, hey, that's not a good song or that's not a good video without being tagged a sexist racist asshole yeah i think that's overreach yeah i think that's a bit hysteric and that's kind of shutting down an opinion which is something that i talk about a lot in white where there is there does seem to be among millennials i noticed a need to shut down anything negative or anything that's too critical of their bubble yeah. the world they live in and there is an overreaction my boyfriend does it all the time and i have to stop him right. you're overreacting to that you shouldn't be that shamed by what they're saying about this on uh, about your youtube thing. Yeah. you've got to it's not that big a deal yeah. and yet he takes it extremely personally extremely seriously and he also talks over people and right. won't listen and i see it again and again and i try to as you know the older statesman of the house try to bring him down a bit and he is he's good at that he acknowledges it now that he was like that he wasn't listening and he was talking over people and um that he should listen to other people's ideas because often he was not at all i'm interested in you i can't really picture you with the role of calming someone down <laughs> i can't either and it happened i i didn't sign on for that as I often told him early on in the relationship when I would see him having meltdowns, I said, this isn't what I signed on for. And then he would also get even more upset by that and even more triggered by my saying that. Yeah. But we have signed on for it, and it has been 10 years, and I don't see it not lasting. It's one of those things that just you know yeah. happened and worked. But, yeah, I am the one who is in the role 
of being the person to calm someone down. I mean, I look, White is by far the most controversial book that I've published since American Psycho. I don't know why, right. but whatever it is. And, and it's triggered a lot of people and it's gotten crazy tons of terrible press. <laughs> but it has not gotten the amount of terrible press that American Psycho got. And I remember just a couple of weeks ago after that New Yorker article appeared where my editor, Gary Fiskajohn, and I were talking about everyone was up in arms about The New Yorker and there was all these other, this terrible book forum review by this transgender critic came out and everyone was very upset and the PR people were running around going, oh my God, what's going to happen? What are we doing? And Gary and I, and, and Todd, my boyfriend, was extremely angry and upset about the responses this book was getting and he even posted something and then he got mob trolled. Gary and I were saying, God, you know, yeah, this is kind of controversial, but does anybody remember 1990 and 91 when uh, the New York Times tried to cancel you when over 17 or 18 articles and they did two terrible book reviews and there was no one on your side and you were getting hundreds of death threats? Uh, does anybody remember that there was no one there for you at all? And you kind of just, I just had to like, pretty much go through this trial by fire on my own. Mm. So, uh, you know, that's one way of, looking at everything that's happening right now. And you say that writing that book was the happiest time of your life. The aftermath was the no, happiest the, time of my life. No, the, the, the writing of it, the summer of 91? That was the summer after it was published, oh, in right, the okay. spring of 91. And it was all over. The book came out, and it was just a book. And to, to many people, a very boring book. And if I have said this, if there was a Rotten Tomatoes for books, it would have had a zero. <laughs> I got no good reviews, all horrible reviews across the board in the States, except there was one. Henry Bean in the Los Angeles Times gave it a good review. And I think 10,000 people unsubscribed to the L.A. Times because of that. You know, I, the triggering, triggering people. If you want to trigger someone, could you trigger them? Me? Anybody. Could you trigger someone if you wanted to trigger them? I don't know if you could trigger me. I really don't, I don't know what could, could possibly you. I could be triggered by. Right. Uh, what could it be at 55? I, I don't know. Yeah. Or 45. I, I never got, I don't know. I never you do get triggered. pissed off by things, though. You say that. Mildly pissed off. And I do write this opening uh, kind of ominous prologue to the piece yeah. where I talked about going online. And I found myself experiencing emotions that I'd never experienced before, that I was getting angry about yeah. stuff. And I really had to pull back on because I never experienced this before. And that I was finding myself getting super annoyed, overly annoyed by people's opinions hmm. about stuff that seemed so hysteric, so over the top that it activated something in me. And then I became momentarily hysteric and it was this kind of loop that, that, was, that was playing out that I didn't want to be a part of. And so there was that moment, and I talk about it before, I think the book goes into a section where I talk about why I haven't been writing novels where that was happening and it was unpleasant so obviously loads of people including your boyfriend are enraged by trump so do you feel calm and uh, level-headed about the political climate in america well i am certainly not a trump apologist i'm not voted for trump i am uh, not conservative i'm not a republican i'm none of those things but yet if you do not adamantly come out against trump and i believe he was just elected president yeah. He was elected president. What can you do about it? I told this to my boyfriend. I said he was elected president. You know, ignore him. 
ignore him and start thinking about policy and start thinking about maybe ways to like get him to do stuff like Kim Kardashian did, yeah. you know, and kind of see if you, I mean, even Leonardo DiCaprio went and saw him after he got elected to like say, look, I've got this, my global green thing and I want to make sure that this is protected and blah, 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 or whatever the conversation was. And I think that was the best way to handle him. I do not think how he was handled over the past three years was helpful to anybody. I don't mm. think the resistance was helpful to anything. And I think putting all of your hope in either Stormy Daniels or Michael Avenatti or the Mueller report was not was a bad move. And I don't know if it wasted enough time. I don't know if it helped fracture everything. But um, I have no skin in the game. I'm not rolling for Donald Trump. Yes. I want my boyfriend to be happy. But I do think that when I'm complaining, and there's a section in the book where I'm talking about the usual cast of characters for my novels, mm. the entitled. And I'm not talking about people in poverty. I'm not talking about marginalized people. I'm not talking about people of color or people who do have super terrible problems mm. in parts of the United States. It is about white entitled people losing their shit over an election in Hollywood and Beverly Hills. And that's what that section is about. Yeah. And that has gotten a lot of people irate and they don't like that section. But it is by no means people who might directly be affected by policies that the Trump administration put out. I don't like the policies. I don't like the Muslim ban. I don't like the trans shit that's going on, uh, to just name two things. Yeah. But um, but it is, it is if you are not an adamant hater, then somehow you're colluding with them. And that is where I... I where I've gotten stuck. And I, I see people make comments about me who haven't read the book or think I'm just some kind of, I become some kind of like Rush Limbaugh, you know, right wing nutbag. And you can talk to Todd and he can tell you that that is anything but the truth. But I'm also not virtue signaling here. I'm obviously, yeah. I'm obviously a man of a certain demo. And I think I was at one time, well, liberalish progressive certainly as someone growing up gay in the 80s and in the 90s you kind of had to be mm. you really weren't that's you you wanted some kind of equality and it was hard to reprocess the world all the time without and also with aids looming everywhere and so mm. i always but i do see that you get a bit more cynical as you get older and mm. you do see the world in a more jaundiced way and you're simply not as aspirational or young yeah. as Todd is. And that's great to be young and it's great to be that aspirational. You can also hit the wall a couple of times, which he probably will do, and you'll pick yourself up and dust yourself off and you'll move on to the next thing. So, Sean, I mean, really interestingly nuanced his opinions are, but are they a little bit disingenuous too? Well, yeah, I mean, this is the funny thing that I think there is a distinction between Brett Easton Ellis the person and Brett Easton Ellis the writer and I don't think much of his writing has, has much nuance in it certainly in this book White I don't think many of his essays show much sort of appreciation for shades of grey it's sort of just this is what I think about the world and this is how it is I was surprised by the quality of his arts criticism though I actually really enjoyed those parts of the book but that's the funny thing that's not what anyone has been talking about over the last few weeks it's always been Trump and the left and young people and I do think he has a point to be made about whether some people on the left are just sort of completely unable to take criticism and so if you do criticize anything that they identify in themselves then they immediately say okay well then you're the other you're the right wing you're a Trump supporter but that is the thing to remember about him that he is he's always shown quite a um, an ability to be very socially liberal and 
he did live through the AIDS era and he, he is a gay man and he has usually voted Democrat, he said in the interview, and didn't vote for Trump. But there is this idea that I think he therefore thinks that's unfair that he's been lumped into that group. But I would say he's done very little to actually demonstrate that publicly that he isn't all of those things that people are criticising him of. He is part of a tradition of writers who sort of they think that they're accidental controversialists, but actually it's almost like they're hardwired to be controversial, isn't it? Well, so writers through. like I'm thinking of Martin Amis or Lionel Shriver. Yeah. Martin Amis saying that uh, suggesting that euthanasia booths should be set up on street corners to deal with the silver tsunami of unwanted old people, or conflating Islam with terrorism, or on the other hand, Lionel Shriver attacking a publisher for being drunk on virtue for trying to introduce policies to broaden this. <laughs> Stuffy. Yeah, and just yeah, I was looking at the cover of the Spectator this week actually, and she's uh, raging about how feminists don't know how good they've got it. There is a th- there is a trait that I see both in Shriver and I see also in in Brett Easton Ellis is this affected outrage at outrage culture and this idea that because people disagree with you, therefore there that there is some sort of irrationality involved in that, and that if people are criticizing you, it's censorship, mm. which I just com- completely believe isn't true. And so, when he was in, being interviewed by Alex, there was this kept coming up this sort of the, the the reactions he was getting from people. He kept bringing up the reactions he was getting from people, but he was also saying that he wasn't that bothered, and he's sort of trying to affect being disaffected mm-hmm. by things and it's just so blatantly not of, true you can the, tell that he's bothered that people don't like and even in the in the essays he writes about sort of sweating and swearing over his keyboard as he deals with people on twitter and it's just like you do clearly care about what people think of you so why are you so set upon trying to pretend you don't but you could call it the what me culture <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> i said a shocking thing and oh my god everyone's shocked but it's, it's almost like it's a it's a commercial impact to it as well yes it? it's a kind of it's a recognized ploy for gaining attention getting readers selling books well i did sort of wonder about having him on the show to be honest so i know that it is he's a very significant writer and he's got a career but that sort of pattern of attention seeking that was happening in all the interviews in the lead up and there was really barely anything about all of the really sort of quite interesting ideas he's tackling in the book. It did actually make me wonder, like, should we have him on? And I'm sort of glad that maybe that interview did convey some of the the things he actually has to say as opposed to all the noise mm. around him. And what, one of the things about these controversies, these what-me writers, as I'm now henceforward going to call them, <laughs> is, is that the controversialism is outside of their body of work, isn't it? With, with Amos or Shriver, actually, it's the things they say... Yes. in the room when they're when they're promoting it's not the same as Jermaine Greer who is her whole work is a polemical she is a polemicist yeah which makes it seem all the more like a kind of media strategy rather than actually a vital part of their project yeah maybe we just say they're they're hardwired for success and part of <laughs> success in this media world means you have to generate headlines and that's the way that's the way it's taken them which you could say is very cynical but you could also say it's it's smart yeah. yeah, well done, Brett. <laughs> well, anyway, one job where controversialism is definitely not welcome is that of Poet Laureate. We'll be chatting about that after the break. It's time to focus. The mood in the UK right now, it seems to me, is a huge set of tensions and contradictions and emotions and feelings about our past, and we're not thinking very much about the future. Today in Focus is the new daily podcast from The Guardian. Join me, Anushka Astana, 
for the best stories from our journalists around the world. Subscribe now to Today in Focus from The Guardian. Well, it's been steeped in all the secrecy of the Vatican City, but at last the white smoke has billowed from the chimneys of Downing Street, which is to say that finally, and not before time, we know who the next Poet Laureate will be. It's Simon Armitage. Cues for great cheers in this room. <laughs> Fireworks! <laughs> Party poppers! Since uh, not everyone will be versed in the arcane traditions of the English literary establishment, Sean. Because yes. you, you're an Australian, Australian. You've had to do a quick self-education um, course, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I find it really interesting. It's one of those sort of uh, pomp and ceremony things that I, I find slightly charming about you Brits. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's a, it's our quite, best features. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those kind of archaic-sounding roles, which is. It's admirable in its own way that it's still going. So there, there is some excitement every time a new one comes along. But yeah, it's it's been a role since 1668. So we've basically got 300 to 400 years of poet laureates. And the first laureate was John Dryden. Uh, it used to be for life, but it is now only 10 years. I do believe Tennyson was the longest laureate. I think he did it for 42 years until he died. Oh, I couldn't um, get rid of him. I know. <laughs> um, I couldn't even get him to drink himself to death on all that... <laughs> On all that sack. <laughs> oh, yeah. So that's another charming thing. So you always got a little stipend, and I think Dryden got 200 quid a year, basically, to be laureate. Now it's £5,750 a year, and then you get 720 bottles of sherry. Which is sack, and <laughs> yeah, they're called sack. butts, butts of butts, sack. Butts of sack, which, butts again, sack. sounds wrong. And it used to be an annual bottle of sherry, so you just got a sherry every year that you did the job, but now it's just a weird tradition. You get 720, I don't know why, but that's that's nice. Um, so <laughs> Carol Ann Duffy, who is the outgoing laureate, she was our first ever woman laureate. It's absolutely extraordinary, isn't it, when yeah. you think people like Christina Rossetti or Elizabeth Barrett-Browning or yeah, well, any number of 20th century poets. So Elizabeth Barrett-Browning was actually considered in 1850 when Wordsworth died but then Tennyson was chosen instead and then when Tennyson died selectors had the option to get Rossetti as the successor but then they decided not to fill the position rather than appoint a woman uh, which sounds very reasonable and not at all wrong and then Alfred Austin eventually took the role and I was giggling all morning reading about Alfred Austin because it just seems like everyone hated him and all the poets that were working at the time absolutely hated him uh, and Robert Browning referred to him as the Banjo Byron which I love Oh, there's a, there's a, There was a wonderful put down by I think it was by Alexander Pope of Collie Chibber who is one of the early incumbents and, and, it, and he said one whose poetry is so sublimely bad it is not poetry but prose run mad <laughs> Very good it's even better when you put down rhymes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's one of those weird things where basically there is no job description, but you're just sort of expected to produce poetry for momentous national occasions. So, for example, Tennyson wrote The Charge of the Light Brigade during the Crimean War, but you also get, you know, royal baby poems, you get... It's now all about royal baby poems. (laughs) Or wedding poems, which actually have a formal name in English poetry, which is the epithalamium. That's a very good word. We should use that more. I don't know how we're going to get that in the conversation. So we want some epithalamia from Simon Armitage. (laughs) Richard, was this a, a bit of a disappointment 
in a way. I mean, there, there were so the names that were in the frame included Jackie Kay, Imtiaz Nagra, and and there was a feeling, or at least in our office. But I mean, we do go around in ever decreasing, so we do sort of discuss things among ourselves a lot. That there was an effort being made to cast the net outside that what one could describe. Parche, Simon Armitage, pale, male and stale. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, um, it's not, I think he'll do the job extremely well. I mean, he's been doing great things as Oxford Professor of Poetry and he's, again, he's hardly a kind of uh, public school educated kind of one of the clubbable old gents, is he? Uh, but it, they do seem to have opted for a very safe candidate. It's disappointing, I, th- I suppose, maybe only in as much as it demonstrates just how hard it is to find someone of his uh, experience, his kind of capacities, who isn't one of that kind of who, who would you Who would you have preferred to have seen? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that if Imtiaz Darka had felt able to, to do it, I think she would have been great. And there's also, I mean, there's also John Agard, who was very positive about the idea at the end of last year, and I think would have been a very, very different kind of candidate, very, would have taken a very different kind of energy to it. Yeah. And there were all these names like Lem Sisse being mentioned and Dalgit, uh, like you mentioned before, and Jackie Kay, Alice Oswald. Well, Jackie Kay is Scottish Macar, so that would have been a bit she controversial. She basically ruled herself out and said she didn't think that she could do <laughs> both. both. And then Alice Oswald, at the moment, there's the vote going on at the moment for the Oxford Professor of Poetry, which Simon Armitage is leaving, and it looks like Alice Oswald, she's one of two contenders for that role going up against Andrew McMillan. So it looked like when, when she became a confirmed contender for that role, it looked like it was her sort of removing herself from contention for laureate and and showing her interest in that role instead. But someone like Lem Sisse, who's just got such an amazing stage presence, would be so good for a role, which is kind of now more about public engagement, really, with poetry than sort of sitting away in a room and writing something. But at this point, I want to defend Simon Armitage because I think at this moment in history when the country is so embattled, actually what he embodies, his body of work represents is is a is a sort of sighting of the national identity in the north of England mm. particularly in Yorkshire and but also the way he has rethought the meaning of things like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and the poem Middle English. He talked about Gawain in the Green Knight as, as being written by a northerner or perhaps a Midlander. He said the linguistic epicentre of the poem has been located in the area of Cheshire, Staffordshire, Derbyshire border. So there's something about him about he's not a metropolitan elite sort of writer and he's absolutely that is what his career is based on he mu- it must be said like people have laid into him a bit and someone put it really well that it's sort of the idea that because it's simple it's bad and that's so entirely wrong that he's he is tackling really big ideas but he's just trying to make them as accessible as possible and he shouldn't be derided for doing that. And also a, um, a great public performer as well and uh, engaged with great public projects like his stanza stones across the across the north of England so I mean uh, very much somebody who can fulfil that part of the job as well. And the stanza stones interestingly because that's claiming Yorkshire as and, and, and laying down in the stones of Yorkshire poetry which is it's sort of a fantastic project when you think how marginalised poetry is. And it's for people who don't know about it, it's a 50-mile walk, along which there are six milestones, into which each of which is carved a Simon Armitage water poem. So it's about landscape and the experiencing of nature, the experiencing of the north of England, which seems to me a fantastic reframing of what it is to be patriotic, what it is to belong to a place and to love a place, and for poetry to be part of that. He came onto the podcast a little while ago when that was published to talk about them, so let's just end with a couple of his water poems from the Stanza Stone Trail. 
I'd like to read this poem, Rain. This is carved uh, at a place called Cow's Mouth Quarry, which is actually on the Pennine Way and looks down onto this most incredible, expansive view. There's the whole Bay of Greater Manchester in front of you uh, on a clear day, and then you can see right to the Welsh hills and Jodrell Bank and you can see up to Winter Hill in Bolton you can see a bit of the Lake District and you can see you know you keep looking west so the, the, this stone where the poem is carved is, is really the first place that those great depressions barreling in off the Atlantic smash against Rain Be glad of these freshwater tears Each pearled droplet some salty old sea bullet airlifted out of the waves, then laundered and sieved, recast as a soft bead, and returned. And no matter how much it strafes or sheets, it is no mean feat to catch one raindrop clean in the mouth, to take one drop on the tongue, tasting cloud pollen, grain of the heavens, raw sky, let it teem up here where the front of the mind distills the brunt of the world. Mist. Who does it mourn? What does it mean, such nearness, gathering here on high ground while your back was turned, drawing its net curtains around? Featureless silver screen, mist is water in its ghost state, all inwardness holding its milky breath, veiling the pulsing machines of great cities under your feet, walling you into these moments, into this anti-garden of gritstone and peat. Given time, the edge of your being will seep into its fibreless fur. You are lost, adrift in hung water and blurred air. But you are here. Simon Armitage there, and long may he reign. Reign in both senses of the word, and for ten years anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Brett Easton Ellis's White is published by Picador and is out now. For more information on the Stanza Stones walk, go to www.stanzastones.co.uk and we've pretty much resolved to have an office outing, haven't we? All 55 miles <laughs> road of it. Road trip, road trip. <laughs> Next week, we take a look at graphic novels through the unexpected eyes of Andrea Wolfe and her book about Alexander von Humboldt, The Naturalist. And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead. Me, Sean Kane. And me, Richard Lee. And our producer, Susanna Trezillian. Goodbye and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>